morning, saints. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are stirred, having heard the word read and the word sung and the word acted out in the elements this morning. It's a wonderful thing to be here and to be partakers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray now that as we open your word, that you would continue to minister to us even as we continue to worship you. We pray, Father, that our minds and hearts would be engaged with your word and that we would view our receiving of the preaching of the word as an act of worship. We pray that you would receive it as such and be pleased. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. As you're finding your place there, if you would stand with me, we'll read those three verses. Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You may be seated. If if you've ever watched a, a marathon, paid close attention to the runners, probably noticed that these runners will refuel mid-race, even while they're running. They're carving up. It's like the best part of running, actually, if you've ever run. It's the carbs. But they are, typically, they're taking in 30 to 90 grams of carbs per hour as they run. And they'll do this through these, these concentrated gel packs, or sometimes they, they use gummy bears, whatever, but they have to be refueling throughout the whole race. Otherwise, a long-distance run quickly becomes a short-distance run. In Hebrews 12, the the author likens the Christian life to a long-distance race. That's that's why this series is called Perseverance, Running with Endurance, Looking to Christ. The author is essentially teaching us through this letter how to fuel for that race so that we can finish and cross the finish line of faith. And the fuel for our race, it's not carbs, but it's faith and fellowship. Faith in and fellowship with our merciful, gracious high priest. This is how we could characterize these dual commands that we've just read. The dual commands that are found in in this passage of three verses, and then at the end of this section in chapter 25, I'm sorry, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, we find the same two commands. 
in both places, indicating to us that the key to our finishing the race is fuel in the form of faith and fellowship. Some of us may feel as if our endurance is waning even this morning. Various trials and temptations weighing upon us and they've, they've drained us. Well, this morning we should be considering how are we fueling for this race? How is our faith and our fellowship? The author first instructs us toward the fuel of faith by commanding us here. He says, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast our confession. And that command to hold fast our confession, it's actually directly related to the previous section that we looked at a few weeks ago. It's directly related to the necessity to strive to enter God's rest. This this exhortation, hold fast our confession, this is how we strive to enter. This is is the fuel for this this activity of, of, of striving to enter God's rest. We cling to Christ in faith. We we confess with our mouth, with our minds, with our actions. Jesus is the one who's bringing me into God's rest. His work has secured my reconciliation with God. It's through Him that I'm justified. I trust in Him. That disposition, that confession, and that way of life that expresses this idea of holding fast to our confession. And the author gives us two reasons to do this. Two reasons to hold fast to our confession. The first is because Jesus has entered the sanctuary. Because Jesus has entered the sanctuary. He says there in verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Jesus passing through the heavens forecasts much of what we looked at last week, which is this, this long argument that takes place from chapter 5 into chapter 10. And, and a key verse for this is, is Hebrews 9.24, which reads this way. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The author of Hebrews is, is, is teaching us in this section that, that Jesus is in the heavenly places even now. Look again at 4.14. The text reads, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Now that does not mean that Jesus passed through the heavens in the sense that, that, that we might go through the drive-through. As if, as, he's, as if Jesus went into heaven and He just kept going and He's no longer there. Another way to, to render this verb and, and to think about it is... is that He penetrated the heavens. Jesus penetrated the heavens. He has entered the heavenly sanctuary. When we think about Jesus entering the sanctuary, that that He is there right now at the right hand of the Father, we should think of at least three blessings. At least three blessings associated with that. All right? So I'm going to give these to you. I don't believe these are in, in your notes, but three blessings associated with Christ entering the sanctuary. The first of those blessings is that Jesus has secured our reconciliation with the Father. Jesus has secured our reconciliation with the Father. When we think of Christ entering the sanctuary, we want to think of that. This is part of, of what His being in the sanctuary represents. He has secured our reconciliation with the, with the Father. Unlike the Levitical priesthood, 
who, who repeatedly enter, entered a man-made tabernacle with animal blood, Jesus has entered one time into the true heavenly tabernacle with His own blood. The Levitical high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies one day a year, and then he had to leave until the next day of atonement came around. But what about Jesus? Hebrews 1.8 reads this way. Now, the point of what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. In other words, whereas the, the old priesthood, they, they went into the, the Holy of Holies, they had to leave, and then they had to come back and do it over again. Over and over and over, Jesus sits perpetually in the Holy of Holies at the right hand of God as a result of His work on the cross, paying for our sins, earning our forgiveness. His atoning work is now done. And He remains in the Holy of Holies, appearing there on our behalf, the author says. Now, on what basis? On what basis has He entered the Holy of Holies? Well, first of all, He entered on the basis of His own righteousness. He didn't need to first make an offering for His own sin like the other priests because He had no sin. The author of Hebrews mentions this numerous times. We find this in other places like in in 1 Peter. It was read for us this morning by Pastor Dan. So Jesus entered on the, on the basis of His own righteousness, but He also entered on the basis of His own atoning death on the cross. His torn flesh, the author tells us, is the curtain through which Jesus opened a new way. So He entered, he entered into the Holy of Holies on the basis of that atoning death, and even now He sits there. Hebrews 10 verses 19 to 20 teaches that He opened that way for us. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. So the fact that Christ now sits in the Holy of Holies at the right hand of the Father means that reconciliation has been accomplished and we are welcomed into God's presence. All those who belong to Christ belong to him in belong with him in the holy of holies. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 shows Paul describing believers as seated even now in a sense with Christ in the heavenly places. So that first blessing that comes to us or that should come to mind as we think of 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 Christ entering the sanctuary is that reconciliation has been accomplished with the Father. A second blessing associated with Christ entering the sanctuary is that Christ is interceding for us. Christ is interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25 reads, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. And what that simply means is that Jesus is perpetually praying for us. Consider consider Romans chapter 8, where Paul notes all the difficulties associated with living in this fallen world. There are these many foes that are standing against us, seeking to sever us from the love of Christ. And in Romans 8, verses 32 and 33, Paul indicates that that our enemies, chiefly the devil, seek to bring charges against us in order to condemn us. 
An Old Testament cross-reference that depicts this very thing is Zechariah chapter 3, where we find Joshua the high priest. He's standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him. That's a great picture of the kind of adversity that Paul mentions in Romans 8, 32 and 33. But Paul asks the question in Romans 8, 34, who then is to condemn? Or or who, who can condemn us? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And the key thing about Paul bringing up Christ's intercession right there in the context of his his talking about this spiritual adversity against us that would seek to condemn us, the key thing about his mentioning Christ's intercession right there is that it indicates that part of Christ's intercession is to defend us against the accusations of the enemy. 1 John 2.1 points in that same direction where the apostle writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but... If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What a great word, advocate. It's a picture of of Jesus Christ, the risen Son of God, serving as our defense attorney of sorts. He's arguing our case before the Father. We, We might say more appropriately, He's arguing His case. Because in all of our failures, Christ is right there defending us against the accusations of the, of the enemy, perhaps saying things to God the Father, like, no, Father, I paid for that sin. I paid for that one. And so please forgive. And I paid for that one too. Please forgive. And Father, this soul, this soul is in union with me. By faith, therefore, she wears my righteousness. And the Father responds to all of these things we might, we might assume with, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The rest of, of this passage in Hebrews chapter 4 indicates other ways that the Son may be interceding for us. He may be praying for us that we might resist temptation. Praying for us that we might endure trials. It's a fantastic blessing that should come to our minds when we think of Christ penetrating the heavens or entering the sanctuary. And that is Jesus right now interceding for us. A third blessing associated with Christ entering the sanctuary is that Christ now reigns over all. Christ reigns over all. The Lord's position seated at the right hand indicates that He has fulfilled God's plan for humanity by ascending to heaven and ruling over everything. We saw that back in chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, as the author was exposing for us Psalm 8. Psalm 8 teaches that it's it's God's plan for us to rule over all things. Christ has fulfilled that on our behalf. He sits there even now reigning over everything and beckoning us to join Him on the last day. This, this high priest whom, whom, whom we have, our high priest, who is sitting in the sanctuary even now, this is Jesus, the very Son of God. And so when we read about Christ sitting at the right hand, when we, when we think about Christ penetrating the heavens, when, when, when we hear about Jesus entering the sanctuary, 
all these blessings should flood to our minds. He has secured our reconciliation. He intercedes for us. And even now, He reigns over all things on our behalf, and He beckons us to join Him there. The author gives all of that to us as a reason to hold fast our confession in this high priest. Trust in Him. He is trustworthy. He appears even now in heaven on your behalf. The second reason to hold fast for our confession is because Jesus sinlessly sympathizes. Jesus sinlessly sympathizes. We find that in Hebrews 4.15. Look there with me again. The author writes, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, so when we think of, of Jesus sitting in the heavens, we, we might fear that He is in some sense above our current sufferings. He's out of touch with, with what we're going through. And so the author here is very quick to, 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 to teach us that this is not a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, many of us may have just an innate sense because of our circumstances right now that this pertains to us. This weakness, weakness describes me right now, we might be saying. And this word weaknesses, it, it, it refers to all the frailties of the human life. Physical difficulties, emotional stresses, the weight of temptation, just all, all of the things that make being a human being in this fallen world hard. Jesus is not unable to sympathize with us in those things. Now, those of us who are, are grammar nerds, we recognize that as a double negative. And so we, we can flip that and say, he can sympathize with all of our weaknesses. This is a high priest who does this. Super literally, to sympathize is to suffer with. And so sympathy, sympathy is not, it's kind of a, a detached compassion for somebody else so it's more than feeling sorry for someone who's struggling. Jesus is able to suffer with us in these weaknesses that seem so singular and unique to us. He's able to suffer with us. It's something like an entering into our suffering. Now, why is He able to do that? This is important. He is able to do that because He has been there. He has in every respect been tempted as we are. There's a, there's a lot of, of debate. If you, if you look at that word that is translated tempted there, there's a lot of debate as to whether that word should be translated tempted or if it should be translated according to its more broad understanding, which is tested or tried. And some of these, some of these debates are, are helpful to us because they make us think deeply about the Scriptures. But, but it may be, that, that we should think of this as both. Because, because trials almost universally are associated with temptations. When, when we have any kind of trial that comes with, with human frailty, even just being hung, hungry or tired, you can bank on the fact that there is going to come some temptation along with that trial. We're tempted to sin in anger because we're not getting what we want. We're, we're tempted to sin in another way in order to get what we want. Similarly, when we suffer a loss, a, a different kind of weakness, we suffer a loss, perhaps, perhaps a loss of a job or, or a loved one, 
that experience is never going to be free of temptation. We may be tempted to be angry with God in those, in those days or, or tempted to doubt God, tempted to trust in some false refuge in order to assuage our pain. There, there is almost universally in the human experience a combination or a mixing of the two. Trials come with temptation. And we find that in the life of the Lord Jesus, don't we? That, that marquee event in, in His ministry to us is temptation in the wilderness. What was happening to Jesus physically, circumstantially during those days? Jesus did not eat or drink for 40 days. So He's, he's hungry. He's thirsty. He's, he's undoubtedly physically exhausted. And so what is the devil's first approach to Him? His first approach is to use those things against Him by tempting Him to turn stones into bread. Why? Because Jesus is hungry. He feels need for food. And so the devil uses that as an avenue to get at the Lord Jesus. Even in the greatest suffering of Jesus' life, His passion, those final hours of His life, He was tempted repeatedly. We see this coming through the mouths of almost everyone around Him, constantly tempted to abandon this road to the cross. Abandon that. Which, which, Which would have been to refuse to submit to the Father's plan. The author of Hebrews, he, he's all about, it seems, this connection between trials and temptation. When we are tried, especially as a direct result of our discipleship with Jesus Christ, we are tempted to fall away from Him. We're tempted to stop trusting in Him. We're tempted to turn somewhere else. We're tempted to look to these false refuges. And the author is saying, Hey, look, Jesus knows exactly what this is like. He knows exactly what it's like. He's been tried in ways just like you are, but without sin. And oh, is that key. He he has been tempted in every way as we are, but without sin. That is significant for multiple reasons. I'm going to give you two. First of all, Jesus' sinlessness secures His role as our faithful high priest in that His sinlessness was an essential component of His reconciling us to the Father. If He is not a pure, spotless Lamb, He can't be substituted for us. So it's essential for us to hold on to this truth that Christ did this perfectly. If He hadn't done this perfectly, then I don't have a high priest in the heavenly places who can help me. A second reason that His sinlessness is significant is that it makes Him the perfect place to go for help. It's the perfect place to go for help. Some folks wonder. I've heard people wonder this. How can Jesus help me if He never sinned? How does that work? Well, if we really think about this, that's precisely what makes Him perfect for the job. Do you want... Who do you want working on your car? Do you want somebody working on your car whose own car doesn't run? Or do you want somebody working on your car whose car runs like a top? I want to take my car to the mechanic whose life shows he knows what he's doing. Jesus is perfectly suited to help us because he's been through it all, but successfully. He he never once failed. And and you know what? Jesus went before us. He went before us through all of these trials and temptations 
and he succeeded in those trials and temptations with the same means available to us. Those means include loving fellowship with the Father, empowerment of the Holy Spirit, meditation on the Word, consistent, expectant prayer. Jesus made it to the cross because, according to 2.13, He trusted God. He, He is therefore the perfect one to help us do the same. Did you hear Pastor Dan as he was reading from 1 Peter today? He said that, that Jesus kept entrusting Himself to the one who judges justly. He kept entrusting Himself. He trusted the Father. And so He's the perfect one to help us do the same. So, who are you going to lean on? Who, who are you going to trust? Who am I going to confess as my great high priest? The author of Hebrews would put in front of us that there, there, is, there is one answer, one appropriate answer, and that is Jesus, the Son of God who has accomplished redemption, who even now sits the Holy of Holies on my behalf, who knows exactly the pressure that I'm facing as I strive to enter His rest, and who knows exactly how to help me, and who desires to help me. I'm going to trust Him. I'm not going to trust anyone else. Faith, that's the first essential fuel of running with endurance. Second fuel flows very naturally from it. Fellowship. And so he commands us, let us draw near to the throne of grace. Let us draw near to the throne of grace. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. To, to, to draw near, it's translated draw near here in that, that's, that twin passage in chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, the same word is, is translated approach. Go to God. Even now, through fellowship with and in union with Christ, draw near to God. And he, he, he calls it a throne of grace. Grace has been defined by Wayne Grudem as God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. And as I look at how that word is used throughout the Scriptures, I, I think he's, he's nailed it. It's God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. We, we deserved only punishment. But Jesus took on human flesh and He stood in our place under the flood of God's wrath. And by that work, we can draw near. We're welcomed into the presence of God. Grace, that word also speaks to the help available to us as a result of His sympathizing with us. Christ's enduring what we've endured with all of its accompanying temptations. It does not leave Him aloof to us, but rather moves Him to help us. And so, given that this is a throne of grace, the author says, we should go there. We should draw near. He gives us a manner and a purpose of this drawing near. The manner, first of all, is that we would approach with joyful confidence. With joyful confidence we should approach. And so the idea is, in, 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 in some circles this may sound heretical, but what, what, what he is encouraging is, draw near to God like you belong there. Because you do. Is that miraculous? You belong 
you be, if, if you are in Christ by faith, you belong with Christ in the Holy of Holies before the Father. You belong there. Some, some of us in the, in the Reformed camp, man, we, we can really overdo it with this. I'm such a wretched sinner and all my righteous deeds are filthy rags routine. In, in, terms of, in terms of who and what you are before God, all of that was true. It was, but not now. And Why is that? It is because you are in Christ by faith. And that means wonderful things, including His record of righteousness is your record of righteousness. And His heavenly reward, that's your heavenly reward. And His access to the Father, listen to this, His access to the Father is your access to the Father because you are united to Him by faith. When we come to the throne of grace tentatively, or, or, or sheepishly, we implicitly deny that it's a throne of grace. We're saying that it's something else. We, we ought not go to God thinking, I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to be here. Listen, that is irrelevant in an approach to a throne of grace. God is good to me in spite of what I deserve. God is good to me because of what Christ deserves. He does not deal with us according to our sins because He dealt with Christ according to our sins. And so this throne of grace welcomes us with Christ into the, the presence of God. And if we understand that fellowship with God, this entering His presence, this is what we were created for. And oh, in light of Christ's work, we should joyfully draw near with confidence that that's exactly where, what we be, where we belong because we're joined to Jesus. That's, that, that's the manner of, of approach, joyful confidence. I'm approaching God because that is where I belong in Christ. But He also gives us a purpose for drawing near, and that is in order to find help. In order to find help. And I, I wonder, it would be wonderful to be able to see with the Lord's eyes this congregation and see how many of us need help this morning, probably in a lot of different ways, we need help. And perhaps you woke up this morning thinking that very thing, I need help. I need some kind of assistance. I need rescue. I need strength. Well, he's saying here, draw near to find help, and he uses two words to describe that, that help, grace and mercy. Grace and mercy. Draw near. You may receive mercy and find grace. Now, over the years, theologians have, have worked hard to differentiate grace and mercy, and, and, and I, I do believe that that is appropriate in most contexts. But in this passage, their similarity rather than their difference tends to be, or seems to be in mind. We, we've already noted the idea that grace is God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. We might shade mercy a little bit and think of it as God's goodness toward those who are in misery and suffering. God's grace toward those who are in misery and suffering. At any rate, the final clause here indicates what mercy and grace are for. They help us. We, we, we receive these things. We find these things in order that we may get help in time of need. Now, I, I would ask you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians 12. 
2 Corinthians 12. This is the passage where Paul relates his experience with his thorn in the flesh. And we won't take time to talk much about the nature of that trial. What's significant for us this morning is what Paul's experience has to teach us about this grace, this help that comes to the believer in times of difficulty. So so Paul has described in the opening verses of the chapter how it came about that he suffered this, this ambiguous trial. It was significant enough that he prayed repeatedly for its removal. Now look with me at verse 9. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he, he's talking about the Lord, the Lord Jesus, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, look at that sentence again. You've got two halves of that sentence, and they're parallel. They're, they're set next to one another to help us understand how to understand grace, and how to understand sufficiency. Grace corresponds to power. So in this case, grace is God's goodness in the form of Christ's power. When you are weak, His power proves to be complete, full, perfect. Continuing in verse 9, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Now look at that word. That's the same word as as the word for weakness in in Hebrews 4.15 where he said he's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, so we should have in mind the same thing here. These are the difficulties of life in this fallen human realm. Paul is saying, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. When God's people are suffering under the weight of weaknesses, whether that's trials, temptations, whatever it is, God's grace in the form of Christ's own strength does what? This is this wonderful wording here. Rests upon the believer. What a great way to describe this. That the power of Christ may rest upon me. It's like He's wearing it. It's like a weighted blanket of Christ's omnipotence. It's on me. I can feel it. He expounds in verse 10. For the sake of Christ then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And much of what he does here, everything that he does here, it's helpful. But in particular, look at all these categories that he adds to weaknesses to help us flesh out what he's talking about. All of these categories, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. I wonder what difficulties represented in that verse are also represented among us this morning. What insults are you enduring? What hardships? What persecutions? What calamities or disasters? It's hard, isn't it? It's hard. It's hard as, 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 as Paul's trouble was hard. It's so hard that you repeatedly ask, can this be removed from me? But on the other side of this particular experience, what does Paul say about his disposition to all of these things? He says he's content with it. Now, the most natural way that, w- that we might think of that in, in our language, the way that we use the word content, is we think, I'm okay with this. I, I can handle it. 
The most natural way to render this verb, actually, is delighted. In fact, that's how the Lexham English Bible translates, translates this word. Therefore, I delight in weaknesses. But can you imagine delighting in your current weakness, trouble, whatever it is that's, that, that's, that's shaping up against you? Can you imagine delighting in that thing? Paul delights in his weaknesses. He now delights in this thorn in the flesh. How is that possible? The answer is, he is able to do that because he has tasted God's grace, the strength and help of Christ Himself. And it's so wonderful, it's so wonderful that he says, I delight in the trouble. Couldn't you use help like that? Help that is so wonderful that you're thankful for the situation that brought about the need for the help. We might say that the Lord, He's really underselling grace when He says, when he says to Paul, it'll be sufficient. As if to say, it'll be, it'll be just enough. This is where your trial's going to end, and it's going to end right on the other side of that. It'll be just enough. That is not what the Lord meant, and it certainly wasn't Paul's experience. Paul talks about grace like it's the party drug of apostleship. Give me more of that. More, please. Yes, I know that it comes with insults. I know that it comes with hardships, trials, calamities. Give me more of all that so that I can have more of the grace of Christ. More of the strength of Jesus resting on me. I delight in weaknesses. Because of what comes along with those weaknesses when I approach Christ. And the author of Hebrews, he's calling us to come to the throne of grace and find what Paul found. Help. Help that overwhelms the difficulty. Perhaps not removing difficulty, but, but, but gaining strength and, and endurance so sufficient that we are able to say even that we delight in the trouble. Look, if, if, you, if you want to endure this difficult life with all of its pitfalls and temptations so that you may enter God's rest, you need to get on this train. Fellowship. Approaching the throne of grace. Because when you do, you will find help for whatever troubles you. Now, now some of us may be a little bit fuzzy on what it means to draw near practically. What what exactly are we saying? How do do I actually do that? What what in particular can I put on the calendar for tomorrow that that will mean I'm, I'm drawing near to God? Well, I, I, I hesitate to equate it with Bible reading and prayer and, and going to church because those things may not mean, doing those things may not mean that I am enjoying fellowship with God. You know, I, I can drive across the county and have no memory of it. it. happens all the time. I sometimes find myself here on time for work, no idea what turns I made. I mean, I can infer the turns that I made, but I don't remember it at all. Totally unengaged in the scenery. Totally unengaged in what I'm doing. Muscle memory just takes over, and I find myself at the destination. The, the, the drive is just kind of about, it, it's about getting the drive over with. On the other hand, I can also go for a drive where I'm mindful of the drive itself. I'm enjoying everything associated with that activity. I'm taking in the scenery. And so so the drive itself is like a form of leisure and and entertainment. 
the drive in that case is about the drive. In, in both situations, I'm, I'm doing the same things physically, but one is a mechanical, mindless thing, and the other is an enjoyable act in itself. Some people in their devotional lives, they're just, they're just driving. They're, they're, just, they're just passing their eyes over the text. They're, they're just saying words to the ceiling. They're, they're just going to church, just hanging out with believers because those are the things that you do as a Christian. But others, others in their devotional lives, they enjoy fellowship with God through the Bible, through prayer, through relationships with the church. So they approach the Word of God mindful, mindful of their place with God in Christ. And so reading this book, thinking to myself, I belong in the presence of God in Christ. I, I, I belong here. And these words are written to me. And, and they pray mindful of their access to God through Christ. As, as, I, as I'm saying these words, I'm saying them to God Almighty, and He hears me, and He wants to hear what I have to say because I'm in Christ. I belong here. And so they, 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 they read, believing that the Word, no matter what passage, it's, poss- it, it, it's pertinent to them. They, they don't just pass over their eyes over, over the words, translating symbols into concepts, but they, they're hiding God's Word in their hearts because it's God's Word. These, these things, the Word, prayer, fellowship with other believers, they are about being with, enjoying, drawing strength from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the author of Hebrews is encouraging us to run with endurance by fueling with faith. Approach God. Go, go to Him in the Word. Go to Him in prayer. Engage with Him by interacting with other believers. Approach God believing God's presence is open to me. Christ sympathizes with me. Christ can help me and Christ wants to help me. All, all, all of that is faith. It's believing that this is true. And faith moves me to fellowship. Because all of these things are true, because Christ is available to me, and because help is available to me, and because I belong in the presence of God, I'm coming to get all of that. And I'm doing it through approaching Him in the Word and in prayer in meaningful interaction with the saints. As we close this morning, I just turn your thoughts back to your own particular brand of weakness. Think about the help that you need. Think about how desperately you need to hold fast your confession to this merciful high priest who has done everything to pay for your sins so that you might have a relationship with the Father and so that he might offer help to you. And how in particular would he have you to approach him? Just think for a few moments as, as we close about, about your, your approach to Him in recent days. Have you been like the person who owns a gym membership but you're not going to the gym? You just like the idea of being a gym member but you're not going? This is kind of what we do with, with, with the Christian life. Well, I, yeah, I trust in Jesus. I just have nothing to do with Him. 
That may be why you are weaker than you, you, you should be. Because you're not drawing near to Him and gathering strength from His Spirit. So I encourage you, hold fast your confidence in the Lord. Draw near to Him and consider as we, as we close how He would have you to do these things. Let's pray. Father, it's a wonderful thing to know You through Christ. Father, we, we have considered glorious things this morning almost too good to be true. Almost too good to be true. But we believe them because they are true. And Father, would you, would you grant us to continue believing them, to recite these things in our minds and our hearts, to keep the good news of Jesus Christ in front of ourselves and one another so that we are moved always and perpetually to cling to our confession of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And Father, believing that those things are true, would you move us, move us to live in light of that by approaching you in Christ? That we, that we would not live lives far from you, but that we would take full advantage of the work of Christ Draw near to you, enjoying you, having fellowship with you, and gaining the strength of Jesus Himself to endure the weaknesses of this life so that we're able to strive to enter your rest and spend eternity with you. We pray for your help in these things, and we ask, Lord, that as we enjoy a, a moment of, of silence in the next few minutes, meditating on these things, we pray that you would grant each of us direction, specific direction for our particular weaknesses, our particular approach. What would you have us do, Father? We pray these things in Jesus' name.